Well, good morning and uh, Merry Christmas to you all. Great to see you all here today. And uh, before we get to the message, just one uh, final invitation reminder uh, about our Christmas Eve services uh, tomorrow. Uh, We're going to have a 5 o'clock service at all three campuses and then uh, 7 o'clock at Burlington and Fort Madison. I hope that uh, you will be able to come out uh, and join us. I I know it's a quick turnaround this year uh, with Christmas Eve being on a a Monday, uh, but you're not going to want to miss our services. And so I hope that you uh, will be able to make it. Uh, Now today, uh, we are going to, after 50 weeks of walking through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, wrap up the big story series by taking a look at how the story ends. So for 50 weeks now, uh, we've been walking right through uh, the Bible, starting in Genesis, ending today in Revelation. uh, And we're going to now uh, talk about this morning the end of the story, the conclusion of the story. As I say that, though, uh, I'm reminded of how C.S. Lewis concludes the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia. Here's how he finishes the entire series. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. In other words, the end of the story is really just the beginning. And it's that end and beginning that we're going to talk about uh, today. Before we do that, though, I want to just take a moment to express some gratitude. Uh, First of all, to the Lord for all that he's done this year uh, in our church and through this series. And then second of all, to to those of you who have been so faithful to read and to study and to listen and to dig in. I'm really rejoicing in that because uh, through the Holy Spirit's work, we've seen just a whole lot of fruit produced in Harmony Bible Church this year. And uh, that includes people coming to know the Lord. that includes people joining our church. That includes people reading and studying the Bible either individually or as a family for the very first time. It's been a really, really great year. And so as we bring it to a conclusion here uh, over the next uh, 40 minutes or so, why don't we just celebrate and thank the Lord here today? Can we do that? All right. Yeah. Okay. If you aren't there already, go ahead and turn with me to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. This should be a relatively easy passage to find, all right? Uh, It's the next to last chapter in the Bible, so find the end of your Bible, turn like a page back, and you should be at Revelation chapter uh, 21. And so today, uh, from Revelation 21 and 22, we're going to bring the big story to a conclusion by talking about heaven and hell. Topic today is heaven and hell. And this morning, we're going to focus more on heaven because A, that's what our text focuses on, and B, uh, it seems to me there's a lot more confusion about heaven than there is about hell. So can we just uh, have a moment of transparency here and admit that we are confused about heaven, aren't we? We really are confused about heaven. 
Uh, if we're honest, uh, don't many of us kind of view or think of heaven uh, the way that Gary Larson does uh, in one of his Far Side cartoons? All right. So, so we kind of think of heaven uh, as this place. Hey, where we, we sit on a cloud, we've got a halo on, we've got wings on, and we wish that we brought something to do because we're bored, right? So, so we, we feel like we've got nothing to do for all eternity. We're up there in the clouds floating around somewhere, maybe singing holy, holy, holy on repeat for all eternity. This is the, if we were honest, this is the way many of us think of heaven. And I want to suggest that this has some, some major implications both for Christians and non-Christians. So if you're a non-Christian here today, if you're not a believer, uh, and by the way, uh, we're very thankful that you're here today. But, but if you're here today and this is kind of your idea of heaven, you probably don't have a whole lot of interest in going there. And quite honestly, I don't blame you whatsoever. I wouldn't want to go to that kind of heaven either. On the other hand, if you're a Christian, uh, you know that you should be excited about heaven. It's something that you should look forward to. But uh, given that this is your view of heaven, you're probably not all that excited. In fact, you might even feel guilty for it, but you can't really muster up a whole lot of excitement about sitting in the clouds and sitting in a worship service, singing hymns on repeat for all eternity. Well, I want to help you with all of this uh, today because I'm hoping, uh, Lord willing, to clear away the confusion surrounding heaven and help you to see it for what it really is. And what it is, friends, is amazing. It's wonderful. It's spectacular. It's greater than you can ever imagine. In fact, if you take your, your greatest idea of what heaven might be, you're only beginning to scratch the surface. Heaven is greater than even our minds can conceive. By the way, that's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. No mind has seen, no ear has heard, okay? No, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, let me tell you why it's so important for us to know the truth about heaven. The truth about heaven is meant to produce in us an overwhelming desire for Jesus to come back and take us there. One of the reasons that few Christians today have a real desire for Jesus to come back is because they have a faulty view of heaven. When we have the right view of heaven, uh, it produces in us an overwhelming desire for Jesus to return. An overwhelming desire that empowers us to live not for this life, but for the life to come. This is a desire that heaven produced in the first Christians, and it's the desire I'm hoping it will produce in us today. It's the desire that the Apostle Paul expresses so wonderfully in Philippians 1.21 when he says this, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Now, I want you just on your own right now to be honest with yourself about whether you believe it would be gain for you to die. Are you looking forward to dying? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should be. You can be. And I want to show you how you can be today. I want to show you how you can be excited about going to heaven. I'm hoping that uh, through the Holy Spirit's work today, that, that he is going to work in such a way that Paul's words in Philippians 1.21 will become a reality for us all. I'm hoping that as a result of the day, we will all desperately long for heaven and will be motivated to live for Jesus until we get there. So with that in mind, 
we're going to look at the first eight verses of Revelation 21. All right, Revelation 21 and 22, I have much of the same information. And so we're just going to focus on the first eight verses. So here's what John tells us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. From these first verses, I want to give you three words that describe what heaven is like. The first word is renewal. Renewal. In verse 1, John says that in his vision of the future, he saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, in Greek, there's, there's two words for new. Uh, one word means brand new. One word means remade. It's the word for remade that John uses here. All right? The, the new heaven and the new earth are going to be a remade one. I heard one pastor explain it this way. If your mechanic uh, told you uh, that he had picked up an old Corvette from a junkyard and had remade it, and then he took you to see it, you wouldn't be expecting to see something different from a Corvette. You'd be expecting to see a souped-up, remade Corvette. Maybe a bumblebee illustration will be helpful here. Four or five of you got that because you know where I'm going with this. So I'm not talking about an insect, all right? I'm talking about the new Transformers movie that just came out this weekend. Now, this movie is apparently the Bumblebee uh, origin story, which got me to thinking about the original or the first Transformers movie. Now, it always gets confused, right? Confusing with these, these prequels. We have a lot of trouble in our household, particularly when it comes to Star Wars. Like, we haven't been able to explain to Zane yet the Star Wars, how that all works, and which movie comes first, and which one is fourth, and how that, you know what I'm talking about here? Okay? You're like, where are you going with this? Just, just be, be patient with me here this morning, okay? So, so um, in the first movie, uh, Bumblebee begins as a old beat-up Camaro, right? But when his new owner makes fun of him, and calls him a piece of junk, he remakes himself into a new Camaro. So, so it's not a different car. It's not a different vehicle. It's a Corvette. It's just a newer, better, remade version of the original Camaro. And that's what's in view here with the new heaven and the new earth. The new heaven and the new earth will be a better version of the old ones. Let me tell you what this means. It means two things. One, it means that one day heaven and earth are going to become one and the same. 
In verses 2 through 3, we're told that heaven is going to come down, and when it does, the dwelling of God will be with man. So heaven essentially is the place where God is, and in the future, heaven is going to come down, and earth and heaven are going to be melded into one. Heaven's not somewhere up in the clouds. It's a remade, renewed earth, okay? Heaven's not uh, about us escaping this material world. It's about heaven coming into the material world. Two, it means heaven is going to include much of what we love about our old earth just without the effects of sin. So, so if you think about all of the things that you love about this world, and, and you do love some things about this world, right? You love some things about the world, and that's okay, that's fine, that's good. Heaven is going to be much of what you love about this world, just simply without the effects of sin. So let me give you some examples here. How many of you love food? How many of you are liars, like it talks about in verse 8? Okay? We, we, love, we love food, right? There's going to be food in heaven. The best food you've ever eaten. Food so good that it'll make you want to slap your mama, okay? <laughs> Although you won't do that because you'll be in heaven, all right? But, but, but in all seriousness here, we're going to eat in heaven. So, so if you think about it this way, uh, despite the fact that we have some incredible food here, uh, the food has been affected by sin. Your taste buds have been affected by sin. And in the new heaven and the new earth, okay, the food won't be affected by sin. Your taste buds will be released from the effects of sin. And so you are going to be able to, to, to enjoy a feast unlike any feast that you have ever been able to enjoy. And you will be able to do it for all eternity and you won't have to worry about calories or gluten or anything else, okay? Be freed from all of those things. Now, I, some of you are probably thinking that I'm making this up, and I just want to tell you that I'm not, right? How do I know that? Well, here's what Isaiah 45, or sorry, Isaiah 25 tells us. On this mountain... Now, by the way, that mountain is Jerusalem. It's the same Jerusalem that's being talked about in Revelation 21-2 that comes down to heaven from God. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. As Tim Keller says, heaven isn't so much pie in the sky as it is a feast on earth. That's not all. We can talk about this world, the created world that we live in. There's going to be an incredible created world, this, this world, this earth, the things that we, we, we love about it, the, the mountains okay, and the valleys and the rivers and the flowers and even the animals are all going to be a part of this new earth. So, so if you just talk about scenery okay, and sunsets and sunrises and the beauty of that, there's a lot of beauty in this world. Okay, The beauty of this world is just a shadow of the beauty that heaven is going to be. So, so, so if you look out and see one of those Iowa sunsets and you say, man, that's beautiful. Just imagine how beautiful it's going to be when we get to heaven, when there are no more effects of sin. So, so we know that this world is wearing out, right? That, that, that day by day, things are getting worse for the created world. All kinds of things are happening. Well, in the new heaven and new, new earth, all of that will be renewed. It will be restored. It will be like it was in the Garden of Eden. Now, I mentioned wildlife there, so some of you are wondering about 
animals. And specifically, you're going to wonder and ask about your pets. So will there be pets in heaven? And, you know, some of these things I'm going to talk about today are what I would call informed conjecture, conjecture from what we see in Scripture. So, so there will be animals. I think that's really, really clear, all right? Will you have pets? I don't know. Will your dog be in heaven? I'm not going to answer that one. I will tell you, and I can't answer the question about cats, okay? And I will do so when we talk about hell, okay? Um, now, some of you are cats lovers, so I'm just kidding, okay? I have a couple of cats at home, one on either side of the fireplace, okay? Uh, but just kidding. Don't send me any nasty notes. It's Christmas, okay? Now, um, so, so those things that we see in the, uh, the, the, in the Garden of Eden, the created world, very likely that those, all of those things are going to be present in the renewed earth. Get lots of other examples here, but in summary, if you enjoy something here on earth, it's likely that you will get to enjoy it in heaven. You'll just be able to enjoy it in a greater way than you ever have here, and you will be able to do so without any guilt, okay, without any shame, and you'll be able to do so forever. So in heaven, our world is going to be renewed, but there's something else that's going to be renewed, and that's us. In verse 4 of chapter 22, John tells us that in heaven, we're going to see God's face and that his name will be tattooed on our forehead. This means that we're going to be made like him. Now, will we actually have a literal tattoo? I'd say probably not. I think that what's in view there is that we're going to be made like him. So in 1 John 3, 2, we are told that we don't know exactly what we're going to be like, but we know that we're going to be like Jesus because when we see him, we'll be made like him. We're going to be renewed like Jesus' body was renewed. So when Jesus came out of the grave, when he was resurrected, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he was the first fruit of the coming creation or recreation. So Jesus' body after the resurrection gives us a picture, a window into what our body is going to be like after we are resurrected. So what was Jesus' body like? Well, he ate, right? Jesus, Jesus ate. It was a physical body. It, it was like the physical body he had before he went into the grave. It was just a new glorified body perfect body, a body without any weakness at all. It, it was, by the way, also a body that was able to do things it wasn't able to do before. So you just think about this. Jesus had this habit after he was resurrected of walking through doors, of disappearing when people were talking to him. Does that mean that we will be able to do those kind of things? I think that it actually might. In other words, we're going to be able to do things with our bodies that we can't currently do. Most importantly or significantly for us, though, as we see in verse 4, we're not going to have any weakness. We're not going to age. We're not going to have pain. We're not going to have any difficulty at all. And does anybody want to say amen to that? Now, let me quickly address a question that might be forming in your minds here. Uh, you might be wondering where believers who have died are right now. Are they in heaven? So, so we're talking here in Revelation 21 about a future heaven. So where are believers right now? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So believers who have died are in heaven. It's just a different heaven than the future heaven. 
The current heaven is a temporary one. After Jesus returns, he is going to remake the heavens and the earth, and we are going to live on that remade heaven and earth with all the believers from all time together with the Lord. So if we go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're told that one day Jesus is going to come back, and when he comes back, the dead in Christ will rise first. So those who have died, okay, are going to come out of their graves. They're going to be restored, re reunited with their spirit. And then those of us who are left are going to be caught up with the Lord. And so shall we live with him and with them forever. Where on the new recreated heaven and earth. And that leads to this. The second word is restoration. Verse 3, look at it again. It says this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Heaven is going to be a place of restored relationships. First and foremost, we will be fully and finally restored to the perfect relationship with God that we were created to have. We will dwell with him just like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. So, so just think about how wonderful this is going to be. About how great it will be to never again feel the impulse to rebel against your creator. To never again experience the shame or the guilt for doing so to have complete and unhindered access to him forever, to fully love and to know what it means to be fully loved in return. By the way, this is what every single one of us is longing for. In, in all of our longings, in all of our desires, that, that hole that you feel, that, that longing that you have, that, that, that sense that something's not quite complete, not quite right, that is all going to be fulfilled when you see Jesus face to face. Now, here, here's something. The most, let me tell you the most wonderful thing in Revelation 21 and 22. And, and it's a little hard for us to comprehend. Uh, but uh, in Revelation 21 and 22, we see for the first time since Genesis 2, humanity being able to see God face to face. So in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve walk with God. That means they, they literally they live with him. They, they see him face to face. They fully know him. They are fully, completely known, and they, they experience that. However, when they sin in Genesis 3, what happens? They are kicked out of the garden. They can no longer see God, walk with him face to face. And in fact, we don't see anyone from Genesis 3 all the way up to Revelation 22 being able to see God face to face. There's only one person who gets close, that's Moses. And God tells him, I'll let you see my back, but you can't see my face because no one can see my face and live. However, here in Genesis 22, I'm sorry, Revelation 22, what happens? We are now allowed to see God face to face again. We are restored fully to a relationship with him. And what I'm trying to tell you is this is what you want more than anything else. All of those things that you are striving after, all of those relationships, all of those things you are giving yourself to, in all of them, what you are looking for is you're looking for the face of God. And in heaven, you will be restored to that face. That is, of all the blessings we're going to talk about today, by far the greatest blessing of heaven is your restored relationship with God. Now, 
while that will be the most important restored relationship, you're also going to be restored with other believers who have died. So if you have a believing spouse or parent or child or friend who has died, one day you will be restored to them. I get asked uh, fairly regularly, uh, will we remember people in heaven? Will we know our spouse? Will we know our parents? Will we know our children? And, and I think really the, the answer from Scripture is a pretty much an unqualified yes. Here's just one passage that would seem to indicate this. Isaiah 49, 22 says this, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Here's what this tells me. Here's what I, I truly believe uh, from this passage. I believe that the second person that I'm going to see after Jesus when I get to heaven is my daughter Zoe. Leave this passage up here for us uh, for a second. I believe that after I get done bowing at his feet, I'm not much of a hugger, but I'll be a hugger on that day, right? At least I'll try to. But, but as I'm hugging Jesus or bowing down at his feet, and as I look up and I look behind him, I'm going to see her riding on somebody's shoulders coming to me. Might be my grandparents, shoulders, relative who I don't even know who's died, shoulders. Might be friend's shoulders. Might be one of your shoulders. But all I know is somebody's bringing her to me, and I'm going to know her, and she's going to know me. And I just want to tell you, friends, that if you're a believer here today, and you have believing friends, spouses, whoever, you're going to see them again. You're going to be restored to them. And your relationship, by the way, is going to be better with them than it's ever been here on earth. It's going to be a perfect relationship. I also believe that this has something to say for those couples who have lost a child, miscarriage, died in infancy. I believe there's lots of comfort here. And we can't know exactly how all of this works, but I really believe the Bible points out the fact that we're going to be restored to those babies who have died. And we're going to know them, and they're going to know us. That's the hope that we have. Isn't heaven a lot better than we tend to think that it is? Restored relationships. Heaven is about restored relationships. First and foremost, restoration with the Lord, but then also restoration with others. Here's the third R, relief. Look at verse 4. I just read it a minute ago. But this is probably the most famous verse in the entire chapter, right? We know this verse. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, something interesting about Revelation 21 and 22 is the fact that we're told more about what, 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 what won't be in heaven than what will be in heaven. You following with me here? There's more of there's not going to be, there's no of this, there's none of this. I believe that's because we have an easier time understanding what God doesn't have in store for us than what he does have in store for us. And as I told you a minute ago from 1 Corinthians 2, we know that what God has in store for us is greater than we can ever imagine. So we can't really picture and understand how great it's going to be, what God does have in store for us, but we can understand what he doesn't have in store for us. And what he doesn't have in store for us is death, mourning, crying, and pain. In heaven, we're going to get complete relief from all of these things forever. 
In verse 3 of chapter 22, we're told that this relief comes because nothing in heaven is accursed. So, so everything in our world today is suffering from the curse of sin. We saw that in Genesis chapter 3. Everything is cursed. The world is cursed. Humanity is cursed. Animals are cursed. I mean, it, it's, all, it's all cursed. But in heaven, there will be no more curse. As a result, there's not going to be any disease or disability in heaven. There will be no aging in heaven. There will be no natural disasters in heaven. And most of all, there will be no sinful actions or attitudes by us or by others. Our bodies won't cause us any problems. The weather won't cause us any problems. Others won't cause us any problems. And we won't even cause ourselves any problems. Which I don't know about you. It's really encouraging because the person who causes me the most problems is me. Don't say that too loudly, any of you, all right? We do cause ourselves more problems than others do, right? We won't even be able to do that any more. We'll get relief from all of those things. Now, I want to speak for just a moment here specifically to those of you who have and maybe even still are suffering at the hands of others. So it's been an interesting year here for our church. As I said at the beginning, uh, we've had a great year in many ways. God's done just an, an abundance of good things. We have a lot to rejoice in. But the truth is, is that on the other hand, we've also seen lots of people in our church suffering and some people suffering incredibly at the hands of others. And here's what I want to say specifically if this is you. The truth about heaven tells us that one day you're going to get relief from that, complete and total relief from that. It also tells us, by the way, that you're going to get justice for that. Justice is God's going to work out his justice, all right? We can even see that in verse 8. What's more, and I want you to listen to me here, when you get to heaven, you are finally going to be able to understand Romans 8.28. You know Romans 8.28, right? All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we quote that a lot kind of glibly, and it kind of becomes a cliche for us. But, but, but again, as I've told you in the past, that doesn't mean that all things are good. It just means that God promises to work out all things for our good. And in heaven, we're finally going to be able to see how everything in our life, lives, even the difficult things, even at times the horrific and terrible things, God was using to produce good things in our lives. Now, I can't answer that for you right now. You're going to have to wait till you get to heaven, but that's what the truth of heaven tells us, all right? In 1 Corinthians 15, we are told that death will be swallowed up in victory. And death includes all of the things that happen to us in life, including our physical death, but it includes all of those other problems and issues. And when we get to heaven, that will all be swallowed up, and heaven will be the sweeter because of the difficulties that we've gone here uh, through here in life. These momentary trials, Paul tells us, okay, God is working to, to give us a glory that far outweighs them all. That, my friends, is the hope of heaven. Regardless of all of this, everything in heaven that causes us trouble will be gone. Heaven will be complete and total relief. And as a result, we are going to experience Isaiah 35, which says this. I love this passage. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. 
Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. You love this last line, right? And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And they shall flee away never to return again. So heaven is renewal, restoration, and relief. Let me give you two application points in regards to all of this. Number one, this means that we should start looking forward to heaven. We should start looking forward to heaven. We should have a great anticipation for the day that Jesus will come and take us there. But let me give you the, the final application of this series, and in many ways, the application of the entire Bible all the way from Genesis to Revelation. You know what it is? It's really, really simple. It's three words that John ends Revelation with. They are, come, Lord Jesus. It's Maranatha. It's one word in the Greek. In other words, in response to everything that we've seen in this series, what should our heart cry be? Our heart cry should be, come, Lord Jesus, come now. Come now. We want you to come now. Do you want him to come now? Do you have a great anticipation for him? Are you longing for the day where he is going to take you home? Will is dying gain for you? It should be. Here's the second application. Not only should we start looking forward to heaven, but we should start living like we're going to heaven. We should start living like we're going to heaven. Now, this means a whole bunch of things. Uh, for one, it means you, you need to stop living like YOLO. For you old people, do you know what YOLO stands for? It stands for you only live once. I want to suggest to you that this is one of the greatest lies our culture is currently telling us. You do not only live once. You live forever. You live forever. And since you live forever, you don't need to give in to FOMO. So do you know what FOMO is? I'm being really cool and hip today with all of these acronyms, okay? <laughs> FOMO means the fear of missing out. The fear of missing out. Our, our social media world is, is driving this and it's making us anxious and it's making us worry because we're going to miss out. What if I don't get to be involved in that? What if I don't get to do that? So, so, so many people today have bucket lists, right? I've got to do this before I turn 30 or 40 or before I die. And I just want to tell you the truth about heaven tells you that you need to get rid of your bucket list. Because if you're going to heaven, you're going to have an infinite eternity to complete an infinite buckle. You'll never be able to complete it. Because there will be so much time to do so many different things that you will never be able to finish it. In other words, let me just say this. If you don't get to go on that vacation that you want to go to on, if you don't get to have the house that you, you want to have, if you don't get to do this or you don't get to have that, it's okay because you'll be able to have all of it when you get to heaven. All of it. And it will be much better there than it will be here. Most of all, here's what this means, okay? Most of all, what this means is that, that we need to give our lives here on this earth to the things that we won't be able to do in eternity. You know what we won't be able to do in eternity? We won't be able to help other people get to eternity. We have got to get this. 
Harmony Bible Church, we have got to get this. We give ourselves to so many things that have no eternal consequence at all. We give ourselves to to lots of things that we'll be able to do when we get to heaven. The one thing that we will not be able to do when we get to heaven is to tell other people about how they can get there. That's what we need to give our lives to. We need to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Now, Now, by the way, when Jesus says that, he's talking primarily about money, but it also includes our time and our talent. It includes everything that we have, all of our resources we need to give to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where we are going to be able to experience them for all eternity. Give ourselves to the things that really, truly matter. And much of what we give ourselves to today does not matter in eternity. We need to give ourselves to the gospel. We need to give ourselves to telling people about Jesus. We need to give ourselves to seeing that those uh, six billion people in this world today who need to know him actually come to know him like we do. Let's allow our passion and our desire for heaven, okay, to translate into us living for heaven. A lot more I can say here, but we need to move on now and talk about hell. So I'd love to end by talking about heaven, but unfortunately, uh, we also need to talk about hell. So look at verse 8 one more time. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. In this verse, we learn two things about hell. First, we learn that hell is a real place a real place of eternal suffering. There are two key words in verse 8, portion and burns. The word portion means allotment. It refers to a place that people are given. And it's a place that burns forever. You'll note that burns is in the present tense, meaning that those who go to hell experience eternal conscious suffering. Now, there is question here about a lake burning with fire and how does a lake burn with fire. And, and so there's, there's a lot of symbolism um, in Revelation. And so what exactly is this pointing to? And, and I can't tell you exactly what it's pointing to, but, but here's what I can tell you. All the images that we have in Revelation and in the Bible for that matter, okay, all point to a horrible reality. In fact, the images probably point to something that is worse than the, the, than the symbolism actually seems to, to make it be, all right? In other words, hell is much worse. Just like heaven is much greater than we imagine it to be, hell is much worse. And it is a place where people actually really do go, and they really do spend all eternity, and they really do suffer. The word torment is the word that the Bible uses quite often. The smoke rises, it says, for all eternity. Second... We learn that hell, not heaven, is our default destination. Hell, not heaven, is our default destination. So most people think they're going to where? Most people think that they're going to heaven. The Bible tells us that this is incorrect. The Bible tells us that most people are on their way to hell. And that by default, when we come into this world, that's where we are headed. Take a closer look at the list of people that verse 8 says it ends up in hell. Just run through it. Cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Now, as you look at that list, you might say, well, I've never murdered anybody, and I don't think I'm a sorcerer, but can you say that you've never told a lie or two or three? 
Can you say that you're not an idolater? That very simply means putting something in place where God should be, making something else other than him number one in your life. Can you say that you've never been sexually immoral, not even once? You see, the reality is, is that every single one of us is mentioned in that list, maybe multiple times, which means that by default, all of us are on our way to hell. That's the default destination of every single human being. You might be a really, really good person. You might have lived a really, really good life, done a lot of good deeds. But your deeds, your righteousness is like filthy rags before God. Your default destination is hell, not heaven. Thankfully, however, here in Revelation 21 and 22, as the Bible ends, we find that there's a way that our destination can be changed. Our destination can be changed from hell to heaven. How does that happen? Well, here's what John tells us, records for us, Revelation 22, 17. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Just leave this up here, please. How is our destination changed from hell to heaven? By the way, I just want to say this. This has to happen for every single person. No, nobody is excluded from this, okay? Nobody's excluded from this. So, so how does our default destination get changed from hell to heaven? It happens as we drink the water of life. Where does that water of life come from? It comes from Jesus. And that water of life, by the way, it says is without price. That means that we don't have to pay anything for it. It means that we don't have to do anything for it. And why don't we have to pay or do anything for it? It's because Jesus paid the price for us. In Revelation 21 and 22, Jesus is over and over again referred to as the Lamb. He's the lamb. He's the lamb. He's the lamb. Why is he referred to as a lamb as the Bible comes to a close? Because it's a reminder to us that Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sin, that Jesus paid the price so that we don't have to pay the price ourselves. And so many people will say, well, why, why would a loving God send people to hell? Well, God has to require a punishment for sin. He's a holy God. He's a just God. And so sin has to be paid for. But God is also a loving God. And listen, friends, God loved you so much that he was willing to send his one and only son. That's what Christmas is about, right? God's sending his one and only son to experience hell for us, to take our penalty so that we don't have to pay the penalty ourselves. And so as the Bible closes... There is one last final plea. Come, come, come. Jesus came so that you can come to him. He came and paid the price. And if you will trust in him, if you will believe in him, he will give you the water of life. I have to believe, by the way, here that John, uh, as he's writing this word, is thinking back to John chapter 4, his gospel, John chapter 4, where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. It's a woman, by the way, who'd been married five times, was living with a man, okay? So, so she was, uh, you know, she was a complete mess. She was a complete mess. But you know what Jesus told her? Jesus said, anyone who drinks the water that I give, in them will spring up a well of eternal life. How do you get it? It's free. You just got to take it. And so if you have never placed your faith in Jesus, if you have never drank of that water, by the way, that, that, are you thirsty today? 
Because we all are. There's only one place where that thirst can be quenched, and it's in Jesus. Allow him to quench your thirst today. And let me just give one final appeal to those of you who are believers. It's not like you just drink from Jesus once. you got to keep drinking from him over and over and over again. Let's do that. Let's pray.